The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining is Professor Barbara McQuaid, as always, who is here to help us understand the 7th January 6th Select Committee hearing. There's a lot to go through here. Um, We're going to end with a question about witness tampering because, again, Liz Cheney is a good habit of... This is a really good production in terms of the drama. It feels like um, that cliffhanger at the end of a, a serialized drama. Um, but she dropped that witness tampering nugget right at the end. So we'll get to that as, as the last question. But Barbara, my first question is essentially what your top takeaways are. Because I look at this hearing almost a little differently than the others, right? So in the previous hearings, we sort of went from the direction of you know, Trump to the pressure campaign, the DOJ, Trump to the pressure campaign on Mike Pence, Trump to um, the pressure campaign of the state officials in Arizona and Georgia. In this case, seditious conspiracy has been charged. These folks and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that we were talking about yesterday who stormed the Capitol, they've been charged with seditious conspiracy. And in some ways, I feel like the committee was doing the reverse. We were taking... What we know are crimes committed and violence that happened on January 6th. And we were linking that back to Trump, back to what he was doing in that very important week, turns out, in December leading up to the 6th. So with that set up, top takeaways from hearing number seven. Yeah, I I think you're right. They spent a lot of time uh, talking about... um, you know, how he sent out the um, uh, be there will be wild tweet back in December. And that that kind of came after he had exhausted every possible legal theory. You know, there's that mm-hmm. crazy meeting in the White House where uh, Cipollone comes in and says, no, you know, <laughs> you can't do this. You can't make Sidney Powell your special counsel. You can't seize voting machines. No, Um and, and it's that night at you know, 1 a.m. or something that Trump sends mm-hmm. out the come on January 6th, we'll be wild. Like, this is it. This is my last resort. I've got to just go seize it. I'm just going to go take it. And then we see, as you mentioned, the connections between uh, the Trump group and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who have been charged with seditious conspiracy, you know, not just showing up and getting out of hand on January 6th, but plotting, mm-hmm. uh, stashing weapons outside of the, the district, uh, stack formations, casing the building, knowing where they're going in in advance. And we even see Roger Stone's initiation ceremony uh, into the Oath Keepers. You know, they had that little, little video where he says, I'm a Western chauvinist and yep. I refuse to apologize for creating modern civilization or whatever craziness he says. Um, we're getting closer. I have still not quite heard the link that Donald Trump knew about the plan. 
Mm. And it may very well be that they were very clever and sophisticated and you use Stone and Giuliani or Flynn or others as cutouts so that Trump did not have the direct link between the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. But I, I had a thought that occurred to me, Zerlina, you know, you went to law school, so you, you, you may remember this, but I'm wondering if we can't possibly have a charge for Don, uh, Donald Trump under the D.C. state laws for manslaughter, which simply requires a level of recklessness. You don't have to intentionally kill somebody, but you do have to you know, know that there is a risk and yet either take action or fail to take action that you're required to do. So I'm going to throw that one out there. Mm. DOJ, and we know you're listening, DOJ. They you are up listening. Yet? DOJ, you up? Yeah. Um, uh, what about that? Because a lot of the people in the Capitol have been charged with state crimes that get assimilated uh, and charged federally because it happened on federal property. So you can reach into the DC laws themselves to charge those things. And so one thought that just occurred to me is it's, you know, he knows this is going on, these horrible crimes are occurring. And he really did like the match. You know, the phrase Liz Cheney likes to use is he summoned the mob, he incited the mob. Um, and then he sat there and, and did nothing and, you know, let, mm-hmm. let this happen. So yeah. there's a little theory you could throw in. It, it would, it would, make him responsible for the deaths, unintentional, accidental deaths, but that he caused through his recklessness. How about that one? I like that one. I mean, I hadn't (laughs) heard it before. I know. I just made it up. I think You know, I've been thinking about that question a lot because a lot of people call the show or um, I have friends texting like, where's where's Merrick Garland? Where's the DOJ? (laughs) And that's actually how I ended up sort of looking at yesterday's hearing a little differently. Because mm-hmm. the answer to the question, where, Mayor Gar- where is Merrick Garland? Like, we actually do have some answers now. And when it comes yeah. to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers specifically, not the other parts of this conspiracy, but when it comes to the seditious conspiracy aspect of this, the violent part, um, we know what Merrick Garland is doing. They are doing something. Yeah. So the answer to that question is, where is he? Well, he's charged these folks with seditious conspiracy, which is the most serious charge we have been talking about in these conversations. And you mentioned that December the 19th tweet, which happened at one o'clock in the morning, which for some reason, I didn't remember that. Like, the, yeah, the, I know. The fa- right. like I, well, there's so much craziness. Detail, You're forgiven. <laughs> yeah, that, that detail, like, didn't register. Like, I was like, December 19th tweet will be wild. Didn't realize he did that in the middle of the night. Like, that's very strange. But I guess he was tweeting a lot in the middle of the night, which is why my sleep habits were terrible during the Trump era. Much, much improved now. Um Coffee. That's why you but, get coffee tweets. No, no. Coffee. Oh, my gosh. Gosh, we lived through all of that. He had the nuclear codes. OK, so so he tweets this at one o'clock in the morning. But that comes after a six hour marathon meeting where, as you said, there was a plot to appoint Sidney Powell as a special counsel, potentially, so that she could seize voting machines. Michael Flynn is like martial law. Let's do this. Get get the military involved. I mean, this is some scary stuff that they're talking about this meeting. I mean, I think even calling it crazy actually obscures the danger and the yes. peril, um, potentially, if any of these actions were actually followed through on. But can you talk about how legally relevant that meeting is in terms of the larger story um, and why? Because, I mean, I always put things on a timeline, like when I take the notes, yes, too. Yes, so smart. And so I love that, you know, you got you have, um, you know, meetings and calls because basically 
everything was happening in those two weeks of December leading into the insurrection. So it's not even like just the, the insurrection being important, but December 12th, Stuart Rhodes says, um, you know, we should declare martial law when he was at a speech in D.C. The state electors plot is a bust on December the 14th. Then you have that big crazy meeting December the 18th, which is then followed by that middle of the night tweet, which is technically December the 19th. December 20th, Alex Jones starts talking about January 6th. December 22nd, Stuart Rhodes starts talking about January 6th. I feel like, you know, I'm not, I don't have a law license. And I just did that. The DOJ is doing that, right? (laughs) Yeah, I like to think so. And I know there are a lot of, there's a lot of frustration with DOJ because we have not seen a lot of outward activity. But I, I, I think they're on this. And as you say, they're certainly on this one. Um, we've already charged, uh, seen charged these Oath Keepers and Proud Boys with seditious conspiracy, which, as you say, is a very serious crime. It, it basically says you tried to use violence to overthrow the government. And so charging Trump with that would be you know, really the most serious charge you could get. Sometimes people talk about treason. Treason only is available when we are at a declared war with another country. This is when people talk about you know treason against the United States in, the, in a more generic term, this is the charge that fits that, that I tried to use force and violence to oppose the authority of the United States government. So that's what it is. But I agree with you. We had all of these things that suggest, uh, and I think what the committee was trying to demonstrate is that January 6th was not a spontaneous, like, hey, you know what? Let's march down to the Capitol. Uh, there was even that uh, email that said that there was a second stage being planned uh, near the Supreme Court, uh, which is on the other side of the Capitol, um, for a second, once once Trump arrived, for a second uh, uh, speech, for a second rally. And they didn't want that to get out because there'd be all kinds of counter rallies set up. So that was going to be secret. But all these people, Alex Jones, um, the, the women's group uh, mm-hmm. changed their permit request from uh, January 20th or 21st to January 6th. So that's not a coincidence. And your timeline uh, Zerlina is brilliant and it is what lawyers do. It is what prosecutors do. And it's what the January 6th committee did because it does reveal things like um, the, the the timing that you, you mentioned that occurred yesterday that I had not pre- appreciated before. But when you put it on a timeline and you see crazy, and you're right, it's not, it shouldn't be crazy, sinister six hour meeting mm-hmm. occurs. And then it's right after that, that Trump goes for Jan- let's, January 6th. That's what we're doing. He knows it is a siren call to his listeners. And that's why I thought it was also interesting that we had that man who mm-hmm. did answer the call. Yep. Um, you know, he struck me as, you know, why him? He's kind of like, every, he's an everyman. He's yep. a guy from Ohio who was loyal to Trump. And he heard this call and like, okay, that's it. I'm going. And, and Trump knew that, you know, he, he knew that people like this guy were going to answer that call. They were going to show up and he obeyed everything, right? He got there. And the, why did you go to the Capitol? Well, because he told me to, I didn't, I didn't know that was the plan, but when he said, let's go on January 6th, uh, or to the Capitol, I marched to the Capitol. And then why did you leave? Because Trump told me to. Mm-hmm. He said, it's time to leave. And so I left. He knew he had, uh, you know, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any vote. He knows he has sway over a lot of people who would answer this call. In addition to those who were in on the plan, he could amass a mob that would be very dangerous that day. It's so scary and, and actually kind of gives me goosebumps sometimes even thinking about it because um, you know, when you're living through it, I think you don't process it. My therapist always says you don't process trauma in the middle of it. Um, 
And so <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, living through January 6th is one thing. But then now when I see just how close we came to, you know, mass assassinations um, of, of our elected representatives, um, you know, even more more loss of life than we than we saw already. I mean, the fact that the coup could have succeeded and Donald Trump could have still been like decided he's just going to. You know, they're all going to surround the White House and not not let anybody inside. And he's in there, you know, being like, I successfully could. I mean, that we, we came close to really disaster. And I think when we hear all of the things that were happening behind the scenes before January 6th, which is what we saw, it's like even eerier. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about um, is the call between Steve Bannon, potentially two phone calls between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. We hadn't yes. heard yet that Donald Trump was on the phone with people who were at the Willard Hotel. We heard about Mark Meadows potentially being on the phone with them. Is it, it does it become even more of a problem legally for Donald Trump that he's on the phone with people who potentially are, you know, chargeable in this larger conspiracy because, you know, he's having direct conversations with them versus having them through his staffers? Yeah, I think those calls with Steve Bannon are explosive. I don't know if we'll ever know what was said because, you know, Bannon is uh, such a um, true believer and is, is so loyal to Trump on this cause. But of course, Bannon is also the one who says the night before, uh, all hell's going to break mm -hmm. loose tomorrow. Um, wow, right? How does he know? Like, good guess? Um, that's That's a pretty accurate prediction. And the fact that he is talking to Trump, I mean, doesn't that, provide perhaps the link between Trump and the Willard Hotel. Um, if we could get Bannon to testify truthfully about what happened, that could be potentially extremely interesting. The other thing we have not yet heard is about the calls between Roger Stone and some of these uh, militia guys mm -hmm. that are occurring in that time. I, I don't know why we don't know. I, I have to think that the committee doesn't know right. that all they have is, you know, phone call made, they don't know the content or that messages were sent and they don't know the content. Um, you know, to the extent they're text messages, DOJ might be have the ability to get those through search warrants. Uh, but, you know, it's it's all but there, right? You can almost taste it, that there is this link between uh, Trump himself and this uh, planned attack. But I think they have not, there's like one more dot to connect right there. But one yeah, if Bannon need, would testify we truthfully. Of stone group chat messages. There you go. There you the go. Archive. That's exactly it. But um, justice might be able to get that with a search warrant. And that Ooh. would be interesting. Um, or it, it may be that justice has it because they've got some cooperators from those groups. So again, Justice Department is working. They're doing stuff. So I, I don't want anybody calling and, tell, and asking me that question anymore. Um, I don't know what they're doing. That's a different question but they are doing something. So where is Merrick Garland? No longer the question. Um, the other thing uh, that came up at the end of the hearing, which is, again, you know, I feel like Liz Cheney is a good habit. She clearly understands this idea of, like, preview what you're going to drop, the bomb you're going to drop at the I end know, of the episode. Great? It's like a Netflix so that, show, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, you, you wait for the whole, you're, like, going to watch the whole episode. You're not going to, like, walk away to get right. snacks Right, the best part comes at the end. <laughs> yeah, you know you're going to, waiting for the best part. And then at the end, it's like, she's like, and the president last week potentially committed a different crime, a new one. Um, we just wanted to let you know, and then we'll be back next week with more. I'm like, what is happening? So, literally, like, on a, a, the group thread for for my Peacock show, 
we just started texting each other like what <laughs> like just what like it just says what <laughs> did she just say that the president last week when i was on vacation for four days four days because it was a holiday week we all had a short week he managed to maybe commit a new crime is that what she told us at the end of the hearing yesterday i, think that- I mean how do you prove I- witness tampering I, I think I think she did. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. She she's absolutely developed the habit of doing this of, uh, you know, previewing uh, the, the next the next show, the next week's show. Um, but uh, it is potentially a crime. And, you know, it's interesting because all they have is evidence that Trump called a witness. And I, I don't think they made a connection. Right. I think the person didn't mm-hmm. talk to Trump. They just reported it, which is absolutely the thing that they should do. We don't know who this witness is. And I guess it, it raises probably more questions than answers. Is this a person that it would be unusual for Trump to call? You know, like mm. if I got a call from Trump, that'd be weird. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, uh, is it is it unlikely? Seems like it is. The fact that the person alerted the committee to the call. Um, a call alone is not enough to prove a crime. You'd have to show that there was an intent to interfere with that witness's testimony. And the mere fact that a call was placed probably is not enough. It suggests to me that it, if it, 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 it at most or it could be a shot across the bow, like Liz Cheney saying to Donald Trump, who she knows is watching. Um, mm-hmm. We're on to you, man. Knock it off. Quit calling right. our witnesses. And when you do, we're going to tell everybody. We're going to tell the world when you make these calls. So uh, you better stop. But I do think it's worthy of investigation. Uh, why is he calling? Who is he calling? Is he calling anyone else? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if so, what does he say? Is he trying to intimidate? You know, the mere fact that he's making a call could be very intimidating to people. Like, oh my gosh, he knows I'm a witness and he's watching. Um, I don't think there's enough to prove a crime there, but it's certainly some evidence and they'd have to look into more. Uh, she said they referred it to the Justice Department and they can throw it into their, you know, into the mix and see what else they've got. They, they may have other evidence, who knows? But um, I do think that the public statement about it is uh, a shot to Trump to say we're on to you and also a shot to the public to say, look what he's up to. He's mm-hmm. so scared that he's trying to intimidate our witnesses. Mm-hmm. I mean, on, on the holiday week, he wasn't just celebrating. He was like, he was trying, <laughs> he's trying not to get indicted at the end of this. Um, so one of the things I also wanted to know is, is there ever, is it ever help, helpful in terms of charges if there's a pattern of attempted witness tampering? Because again, the call didn't connect, but if you're calling all the witnesses and hanging up before they answer, is that bad? Like, I, I don't feel like that's good. It's not completely benign behavior. Like, maybe he's a smart witness tamperer. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's up to a jury to decide mm-hmm. uh, the elements. Did the person do something to um, uh, reach out to a witness? And was it for the purpose of interfering with their testimony? Mm-hmm. And that would be a jury question. You know, what, you know, what, did you get 12 people unanimously to decide beyond a reasonable doubt that when he called and hung up that that was the intent? Maybe, you know, maybe if he does it with all of them, you know, he's done it 10 times with all 10 witnesses, you know, <laughs> on the day they're testifying, that that could be enough. But I think most juries uh, and most prosecutors would probably want a little bit more. But, mm-hmm. you know, if, again, you throw it in the mix, refer to DOJ, what else? Maybe they've got other evidence of similar calls. Maybe they've got call records of him doing the exact same thing. You know, on the eve of, of, of testimony, he calls every witness and he hangs up just before they hang, you know, they could, they could see the caller ID. That could be enough. I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it also feels to me sometimes when we talk about this stuff, and I know that this is the frustration I think the people who call in and ask where Merrick Garland is are feeling, which is, isn't there a lot of evidence of maybe crimes that we've talked about for the, the past five years 
And no one's charged Trump with anything. I know that during his presidency, there was a DOJ memo that said they can't charge him, right? So all the things I read about in the Mueller report, all the crimes I read about in the Mueller report can't be charged because of that rule. However, that doesn't apply here. But it still feels like, you know, we're talking about a lot of things where if it was you or I, we would be charged with a crime, probably by a prosecutor somewhere. Um, but but Trump seems to be, quote unquote, getting away with it. Is that simply just because we're just not being patient or is is he being treated in a different way than the average person? Um, I think that although the Justice Department and I'm sure the Manhattan D.A. all uh, say that no one is above the law and we must treat everybody uh, equally under the law, that there still is this idea that it is going to be portrayed as politically motivated. And therefore, you need to have such strong evidence that you can defeat that perception. And so I think in some ways, um, they do want a little bit more, a little bit more evidence than they might want against a no-name, everybody like the rest of us. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't think they're, they're, they're allowing him to sink... Uh, be held to a different standard, but I think that there, there's a little bit of gun shyness when you're charging somebody who is so prominent just because you know it is going to be such a dogfight that, um, and the jury is going to be told this mm-hmm. is all politically motivated. So you're going to want to have really, really solid evidence. You know, like the Manhattan DA case is, is um, struck me as, you know, it looked like it was all systems go. And then Alvin Bright comes in and says, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to file these charges. Um, you know, I think he's a person of integrity and a person who is a, a good lawyer. I think he probably just looked at it and said, you know, it's kind of there, but, <laughs> but right. it, this is going to be such a dogfight. I think this is a, you know, I think it's not quite what I need. Um, you know, we'll see in Georgia. Uh, I think that could be the place where uh, he gets his greatest comeuppance um, just because it's a discreet case and she's moving with a swift pace. Uh, that might be the first to come. And then, you know, sometimes once once you see success there, right. it could embolden the Justice Department. Like, huh, you know, she was able to do it there. Why not? Let's go for the whole house of cards up here. Right. So it could happen. But I agree. I understand the frustration because he seems like the most lawless human in the face of the earth. And yet somehow um, he's like a supervillain who never gets brought to justice. But it's very uh, frustrating as a law abiding yes. citizen. I have yes. to say. Yep. I'm like out here trying to comply with laws. And he's like, what are laws? I don't uh, I don't yeah. have to follow those. Things. Well, and it's it just is- suggestions. Yeah. And it really is part of this whole, like, you know, strongman persona that laws are for little people and I, right. I, can, I can get away with anything. And it's, it's why holding someone like him accountable is so important mm-hmm. because it does send a message to all the rest of us that, yeah, you know, there are consequences for breaking the law. So you should obey it. <laughs> and that was a point that you made even before these hearings started, which is, I think, and, and actually now that we've seen that the hearings have far exceeded our expectations, um, you know, the, what happens and what is the danger if he's not charged? I mean, you said that before these hearings started. Now that we've seen all of this, I mean, I didn't know about the crazy meeting or happening right before the mid, middle of the night tweet. I didn't know about, um, you know, all the things we learned about the pressure, the different pressure campaigns that were going on behind the scenes. Now we know all of that. Feels to me, if you don't charge at the end of this, that's more dangerous than we thought going in. Yes, I think, you know, prosecutors make two, two decisions. We've talked about this before. One is, can we charge? Do we believe the evidence is sufficient? Um, and, and we'll see whether they get there. And then the second question is, should we charge? Does this advance the substantial interests of the United States? And sometimes, you know, case just isn't worth it, or it would seem unjust, or 
um, you know, we want to use our resources in different ways or whatever it is. Here, I think there is, you know, this concern that charging a former president sets a bad precedent and it could lead to civil unrest and even civil war, et cetera. But I think not charging is even worse. One of the reasons prosecutors charge is to deter either this person or others from engaging in similar conduct in the future. And if he is not held accountable, I can imagine him trying this again in 2024 or other uh, elected officials trying this again in the future. Uh, hey, look, you know, they're afraid to charge former presidents. So we'll just mm -hmm. do whatever it takes to win, break all the laws, seize all the power, abuse everything we have, and we can just seize it. I, I think for that reason, if the evidence is there, not only should they charge it, they must charge it. And so we also got a preview of what's going to happen at the next hearing. And this is the hearing that they already sort of previewed what they are describing as Trump's dereliction of duty um, mm -hmm. on the Sunday shows over the weekend. And so that's what we're going to hear about in a minute by minute TikTok of January 6th. You know, he, he went through all these pressure campaigns, as we said. Um, he summoned the mob. He, you know, lit the match and, and they came. They attacked. People died. Um, and during all of that, once he did all of the things, he still didn't intervene using his power as president to send backup or, you know, stop the mob from attacking. Um, is that criminal? Is that is that part of it? Not, you know, he he did take an oath. We all watch it on the day of the inauguration. Um, he swear he gets sworn yeah. in, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, like, you know, I would assume he has some obligation to to make the call instead of Mike Pence to the Department of Defense to send in backup. So is that is that potentially that next thread that we're going to hear in the next hearing criminal in any way? Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, coming back to the thing we were talking about earlier about this idea of it's called the Assimilated Crimes Act. So if a state crime or in this case, District of Columbia crime occurs on federal property, it can be chargeable as a federal offense. And I think that you might be able to charge tr Trump with manslaughter. Remember, he has a duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. He has the power to call out the National Guard. He also seems to have the power to simply just call off the mob, as he mm -hmm. ultimately did, and they went home. Um, his failure to do any of those things, I think, could be framed as recklessness, which is defined as, I know there is a risk of something bad happening, and I chose to do or omit to do uh, this thing anyway. And then this accidental death occurred. So, you know, we've got the five deaths occurring or four suicides later, uh, but at least the five that occur that day uh, with the police officer and some others who just caught up in the mob violence. Were those preventable deaths if he had simply called in the National Guard or stopped it? You also have to show causation that mm. the timing was such, you know, if it happened in the first yep. five minutes, maybe not. But if it happens in hour two or three, uh, you know, he could have stopped those. I think there is a potential crime there. So I will be interested in hearing about you know, what he was seeing, what he was being told. Three hours is a really long time. You know, yes, that, it is. That, and, and he's watching it on TV, you know, that something happened and he didn't know about it and only finds out later after the fact, you know, you can't uh, charge him for that. But I think we're going to hear, I'll be very eager to hear about what did he know, you know, what did he know and when did he know it? Um, and how, you know, how many people were saying, and was he, he was watching on TV, really? Uh, that'll all be very interesting, I think. Well, he knew that people had weapons because he was told in the morning. There you go, right? Um, before point. the rally, that the people yeah. that were there had had weapons, and he told them mm -hmm. to get the mags down because I want my people let my people in. They're not here to hurt me. Um, all of that is so interesting and fascinating as this uh, moment um, in American history. It's it's 
actually too much for me to process this moment in American history, frankly. Um, Professor Barbara McQuaid, thank you so much for helping us understand what we saw at this hearing, but also the the several that we've also um, gone through previously. And um, we hope to have you again for the hearing coming up, which is going to focus, as you said, on what he was doing, when what he knew uh, and when he knew it um, on the day of the actual insurrection. I can't believe I can't imagine. I mean, three hours. (laughs) That's like. Remember when we had VHS tapes? That's like three hours. You needed two tapes. Like it's like Titanic where you like <laughs> you got to the end of the first tape, you know, when, you know, Jack is like, bye. And then you got to you get you take the tape out and put another tape in and press play for the second half of the movie, because that's how long three hours is. It's like that Robert De Niro Al Pacino movie on Netflix. It was like three and a half. That long. Very long time. It is a long, um, long time. But, Professor, thank you so much um, for thank helping you, us Julia. understand. Oh, all my of pleasure this, to be as here. always. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.